Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking yet again with Dr. Jeffrey Long about his fantastic uh, new 2020 publication, Hinduism in America, Convergence of Worlds. Hello, Jeffrey, and welcome back to the program. Hello, Raj, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Now, this new publication, Hot Off the Presses, is actually a publication of Bloomsbury Academic. Before we dive into the publication, maybe starting with its, its, its sort of form, could you tell us a little bit about Bloomsbury Academic? Well, Bloomsbury Academic is uh, a very large uh, publishing concern. They cover a, a massive range of academic areas, uh, particularly in the humanities, religious studies, history, philosophy, political science. Uh, they're, they're extremely wide ranging. They're based in London. Uh, they're a, a British based, but they're a global concern. They have a branch in India. Uh, they uh, also uh, have um, a connection with Palgrave Macmillan in the U.S. Uh, Palgrave Macmillan is involved in the distribution of some of their books in the U.S. And uh, they are also, um, we, you know, if we think about the current global pandemic situation, uh, they are one of the publishers. I, I work with several publishers. They are one that has fared quite well uh, during the pandemic. They've been able to manage their resources, I think, in a way that's enabled them to keep publishing books and to continue doing their work. And uh, it's been a real pleasure working with them. Uh, I have uh, uh, previously also published with IB Taurus, and they uh, just a year or two ago actually acquired IB Taurus and its catalog. And so uh, several of my books now are actually under the Bloomsbury umbrella. So uh, I've, I've enjoyed working with them, and they've been tremendously patient with me and helpful with me in my writing process. 
And are they primarily um, publishing materials uh, for, say, university education or university libraries? Is that the type of thing they publish? Um, they do monographs as well, but uh, yes, they are pretty heavily focused on textbooks um, and uh, the kinds of resources that you would find in libraries. Uh, this book itself is structured like a textbook. Uh, it's uh, uh, you know got uh, suggestions for further reading and study questions at the end of each uh, chapter, for example. And so, yes, they are focused more on the, you could say, the pedagogical side of things. Well, you've, you've preempted where I was going with that, which is uh, before we dive into the fascinating and far-reaching content of the book. Um, the book is is set up in a very user-friendly way with uh, questions sort of to test yourself or, uh, on the content of that chapter, along with a list of, of subsequent readings. So it's it's obviously, um, you know, pedagogically inclined, you know, which as sort of a, a, a student and educator myself really resonates. And imagine it will with most of our audience who take a look at the book as well. So um, Hinduism in America, now one might think that's a rather broad title. Yet when one sort of uh, surveys the content of the book, uh, it's not unapt. Right, like it's you really are talking about Hinduism in America, um, in various incarnations and in various manifestations, um, and so, you know, I don't. These interviews are never scripted. Um, before we sort of look at the various limbs, I think there are eight different chapters, uh, eight limbs of your book. Right. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk about the Ashtanga uh, book of Hinduism in America. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, Let's talk about a great place to start, actually, is you have, I believe, a preface or a prologue where you, you know, you flesh out your relationship, your, your lived experience uh, and interests and journey with this material. And um, I think that might be a great place to start because the genesis of the book is is much more than, you know, one afternoon I had a, a research question, right? It's It seems to be decades of your experience and exposure uh, without putting words into your mouth. So tell us about, tell us about what uh, inspired this book. Okay, very good. Well, you've, you've explained it extremely well, in fact, uh, in, in your question to some extent, uh, that uh, in, in, in the preface, which I initially hesitated to write, because this is an academic book, it's not about me, it's not about my personal life. Um, at the same time, I find that particularly when we discuss topics related to identity or anything that is politically charged, uh, that it is helpful to indicate one's relationship to that material and you know where, where we're coming from, right? Uh, if we put it very crassly, why is this white guy writing about Hinduism, right? So I talk in the preface about some of the experiences I had in my childhood. Uh, I mentioned that my first encounter with Hinduism was not really with what one might consider proper Hinduism. Uh, uh, it wasn't with actual practicing Hindus. It was not with a Hindu text. It was with George Harrison's My Sweet Lord, uh, which was one of my dad's favorite songs. And I heard it a lot growing up. And I was always intrigued by this chant, uh, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. It struck me as very beautiful. And uh, uh, my father passed away when I was 12, and there, there was a long ordeal associated with that. He was initially injured in an accident when I was 10, and then uh, over the course of a year and a half, uh, you know, the family, I mean, all of us went through really a great 
deal of struggle and suffering. And uh, in the end, uh, you know, when he passed away, uh, we had to, of course, live in the aftermath of that. And for me, a big part of that was sort of figuring out what I thought about death and life and suffering and why these things happen. And I, I was raised Catholic and I took a lot of comfort from my faith. I was a pretty devout Catholic, but also a pretty independent minded one. And uh, I, certain ideas resonated with me and made sense to me and certain ideas did not as much. And then uh, I came upon uh, this wonderful book. I came across a copy of the Bhagavad Gita uh, in the, uh, it's funny, it was at a, at a flea market in the parking lot of the local Methodist church, uh, in this little town in Missouri, uh, where I, uh, where I was raised and I found this book and I started reading it and it, it, everything in it just made so much sense to me, uh, because I, I had my own thought process. I was, I was kind of positing a concept similar to rebirth, uh, before I even came upon the Gita. But then when I came upon the Gita and saw the description of how, uh, you know, just as uh, a person casts off old and worn out clothing and takes on new clothing. And so in the same way, the soul casts off the body and takes on a new one. And I, I found this very deeply comforting, uh, this, this concept and uh, the idea that our loved ones don't cease to exist. They continue on in another form. Uh, it, it really resonated with me and the aesthetics of it resonated with me. The Gita that I found was the Iskan uh, Prabhupada Bhagavad Gita as it is with the really bright illustrations. And I j it really just grabbed my imagination uh, immediately. And so I started reading everything I could find on various world religions. I was really kind of on a, on a quest to understand everything. And, uh, but what always drew me the most uh, was uh, the Indian traditions, Hinduism, as well as Buddhism and Jainism. And it just, it seemed to me there was a lot there that made sense and that, that was very attractive to me. But I was not thinking at that time about you know, sort of changing my religious identity. I was Catholic, I was going to mass and everything. And I was, I was finding a way to incorporate a lot of these ideas and thoughts into my own kind of private worldview, I guess you could say. And then uh, I had the opportunity to meet the one Indian family in our small town. And I know this sounds horribly stereotypical, but they were a Gujarati family who ran the local motel. And that was just the reality, right? I didn't make that up. <laughs> that, that's, that's who they were. And uh, I got to know them because um, the parents were looking for a math tutor for one of their daughters. Uh, she was having a little trouble in math. So they went to the high school and they said, is there a student uh, that would be willing to tutor, uh, tutor our daughter? And um, they asked uh, a friend of mine and uh, he said yes, but he wanted to charge you know, for his time. Uh, and, um, the, our school counselor thought, well, let's see if we can get someone who's, who's willing to do it for free. And, uh, when I heard that I might get to go meet, uh, the Indian family, I thought, well, that sounds, that sounds really exciting. Uh, because, you know, I'd been reading about Hinduism. I'd been reading all these books and, and, you know, listening to George Harrison music and Ravi Shankar music and bhajans and that sort of thing. And I just thought, well, this, this, this will be great. You know, I, I would like to, to, to meet this family. And so uh, I became good friends with them. The, they uh, were very warm and friendly, and they, um, they invited me over every Monday night. That's when they did puja, and that was the night that they had Indian food. And, uh, you know, the, the kids 
they liked their, you know, their hot dogs and pizza and so on. Uh, but on Monday night, they had to eat Indian food. Well, I loved it. And uh, that was the first time I had Indian food. And I really enjoyed it. And uh, we had the, the, they did this puja that I just thought was such a beautiful expression of, of, of love for God. And, and so I, I was, I was hooked. I mean, I just, I, I found this was, was entirely fascinating and, and appealing to me. And, you know, that's really where my fascination uh, with, uh, with Hinduism started. And then uh, going on through college, I took courses. I took courses with Paul J. Griffiths, who became my advisor and mentor. Then when I went on to grad school at Chicago, he actually ended up teaching there as well. So I continued to work with him and uh, just, you know, continued on in my journey of getting uh, ever more involved in Indian philosophy and Vedanta especially. And uh, then, of course, I met my wife in grad school and uh, we got married uh, in India. I went to India and uh, studied actually in JNU for about two years and we got married there in India. Uh, we met in Chicago, but we got married uh, in India and, uh, you know, sort of joining the tradition through marriage uh, in a certain sense, you could say, I, I, I really, I became much more involved in the community side of, of Hinduism in America, especially after we returned. And, uh, you know, my wife wanted to connect with other Indians and she, she's Bengali. So other Bengalis in particular. So we were involved with the Bengali Association in Hyde Park in Chicago and planned the Saraswati Puja each year. Uh, one of my fond memories is we did Saraswati Puja. Saraswati, of course, is the goddess of wisdom. She's very popular among students. Uh, there's a popular practice in which you bring your books that you're studying with and put at her feet, and then hopefully you get an A on your exam. And uh, the, in 1997, we did the Saraswati Puja. That was in February. It usually falls around late January, early February. And in late February, I had my PhD qualifying exams, and they went extremely well. And so I always uh, thanks Saraswati for that, and uh, so um, you know we were we were very active there in Hyde Park, and then when we moved to Pennsylvania, I got my job in Elizabethtown College, and my wife wife also is an academic; she teaches Japanese. She was also hired here. We were both hired, and uh, I in religious studies, and she uh, to start the Japanese program, uh, which we've had here for almost 20 years now. And we became involved in the Hindu community in Southern Pennsylvania, where we are. So uh, we have a local temple. A couple of the photos from the book are from events at our local temple or outside the temple, but in community centers where the community also sometimes has various events. So there's a photo from a Durga Puja that was held at a, I think at a fire station, if I remember correctly. And uh, a couple of photos from the temple and but we've been uh, I've been very involved in the <clears throat> the community here locally, and uh, so I was even on the board of trustees of our temple for three years. I was nominated and, and elected to that, and I was very honored to serve in that. So uh, before I had any idea that I was going to write this book, just for years I had been kind of doing the equivalent of. Uh, participant observation and field work, just being involved in the community. And I was involved because I wanted to be involved, not as an academic, but because I am an academic and I do study Hinduism, that sort of part of my mind is never, you know, never really switches off. And so like while I'm participating in puja, for example, 
I'm experiencing it as a participant. I'm experiencing bhakti. I'm, I'm having the experiences that I have. But part of my mind's also observing, okay, this is how you do this. And I know that this comes from this particular text. And this is this is done in this way in this region of India, but it's different in another region of India. Right? So the academic side, I mean, we're, we're one whole person, even though we have many different facets. And so uh, these these things informed each other in various ways. And so then if I fast forward to about five years ago, a very good friend of mine, Anne Gleig, uh, who is uh, just a brilliant scholar, and she has written a wonderful book on Buddhism in America. And uh, I believe she was approached by Bloomsbury initially to write this book. And she said, well, uh, that's a little bit outside of, of my main expertise, but I know someone <clears throat> who I think uh, could do the job. So at her suggestion, Bloomsbury contacted me, and I thought, well, this is really interesting because most of my work has been in philosophy, I, and, and that's my training. My training at, at Chicago was in philosophy of religion, and I'm, you know, my strictly academic side is much more connected with studying ancient texts or studying um, modern texts of people in contemporary movements like the Vedanta Society, Ramakrishna tradition, Sri Aurobindo, people like that. So it's all philosophy and, and very abstract. And this seemed much much more like a sort of an anthropological uh, type of project. And so uh, I thought, well, that, that'll be a challenge. But then I thought, well, but I've, I've kind of been living this for 25 you know, years now. So I can draw upon so many conversations I've had with people and I can follow up and sort of formalize this now into a research program. And so I interviewed people, I talked with people and got their consent. Um, of course, uh, names have been changed in the book. That's the standard anthropological practice, especially, uh, you know, sometimes some of the issues have, you know, there are people who disagree about things, there, there are politics involved. So uh, I just, i talk to a wide range of people. And uh, of course, uh, with the rise of the internet, uh, a lot of my connections with people in the community have been through social media, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. So I did a lot of uh, emails by email or Facebook messenger and just communicated with people about their views on a range of topics. And so I, uh, and, and then I just had this mass of, you know, photographs and, and personal experiences of, of different temples and, and, and uh, rituals that I'd been involved with. So all of this kind of flowed into the book. And then another dimension of the book uh, is uh, people like myself uh, who are not, uh, weren't born Hindu, didn't grow up in the Hindu uh, tradition. Uh, but who've been drawn to it or to different facets of it uh, just because of our own life experiences. And, you know, pe people like me who maybe they've had tragedies or they were just curious or questioning. And, uh, of course, uh, one of the people who's really written about that a lot and or who is, is sort of uh, famous for that is uh, Phil Goldberg, who is actually a friend of mine. His book, American Veda, does a very nice job of covering that material. But I thought, wouldn't it be great if we talked about this as a total phenomenon, inclusive of the what we might call the proper Hindu community, right? The the those who have uh, grown up with the tradition and and many of whom have immigrated or they're the children or grandchildren of immigrants uh, from uh, India or other parts of South Asia or other parts of the world, and include that as part of a wider discussion with 
this discussion of, of Western seekers, you know, people who are attracted to things like yoga and Vedanta and, and so on. Uh, because I find that there's a, there's a good deal of really excellent work, ethnographic work on the, what uh, Amanda Lucia calls the inheritor community, those who've grown up with the tradition. And then you have work of, uh, you know, Phil Goldberg, but also people like Lola Williamson and Gleig and others who've talked about what, what uh, Amanda Lucia calls the uh, adopter community, right? People who take up uh, a Hindu practice or, or a tradition connected somehow with Hinduism. And uh, that th- there's good work on both of those, but there's not a lot that connects them. My experience, though, is that the boundary between those two is becoming increasingly tenuous, particularly as you have the second and even third uh, and now maybe even fourth generation of immigrant Hindu families in America, uh, you know, those, those people are growing up in, you know, they're going to high school in America, they're having the whole American experience. And at the same time, they're receiving from their family, these traditions. And a lot of their questions and concerns are, are not that different from those of just any uh, Westerner who might be uh, intrigued or drawn to the tradition. I've also had the experience, for example, of a uh, walking in on, uh, let's say, a program where uh, children almost entirely of a South Asian uh, background uh, being taught about Hindu principles by a white man in an orange robe, uh, you know, um, someone who uh, has taken religious vows, but uh, who uh, was not someone who grew up in the tradition. So I was thinking, oh, these aren't completely sealed off from one another. And also, uh, I've learned uh, that there are a growing number uh, of people who are not of South Asian descent who actually are quite happy to use the word Hindu to describe themselves. They self-identify as Hindu. So to the point where if you look at the Pew Research poll that was done on this a couple of years ago, uh, you'll find that up to 9% of uh, people who self-identify as Hindu in the U.S. are not uh, of Asian descent. Uh, they're a bunch that are... Uh, white, there are a bunch that are African-American, there are a bunch that are Hispanic, and then there are people who are of mixed backgrounds. And so uh, it's, uh, it's a tradition that spans ethnic groups and that people adhere to for reasons ranging from, this is the ancient tradition of my ancestors that I wish to preserve and pass on to my children, to you know, I didn't grow up in this at all, but then when I encountered it, it, it resonated with me, it made sense to me, and I'm very drawn to it, right? And, and everything in between. Um, so I wanted to make this book, uh, as you said, uh, sort of reflect this whole lifetime of engagement that I've had with, with Hinduism. And so I, I really put a lot into it in that sense. I'd, I'd say uh, I, there's there's some personal investment uh, for me in this book, maybe more so than in uh, uh, – than well, though I personally invest in everything I write. But <laughs> this one I think particularly – uh, is very dear to me. Yeah, there's uh, there's uh, there are a number of threads in, in what you have sh- what you have just shared that I'd like to follow up on. Um, so the, the the opening section, sort of sharing your experiences and the ways in which this material is very much lived for you. Um, I actually think. I understand uh, why you'd say there was perhaps some hesitation or reticence about including it. Uh, And yet I think it does add so much to understand where 
um, a writer or an author is coming from, uh, you know, it, given a work where it's abundantly clear that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a proper scholarly work and, and the person's doing their darndest to, you know, advance knowledge, yeah, uh, in a, you know, w- without falling prey to ideology or, or a specific agenda, given that it's, it's so very useful to understand the influences and the experiences of the person writing the work. You know, one thing that really resonates as well in what you're saying is um, I'm a textualist by training. You know, I study ancient Sanskrit narrative. I study, you know, the, the epics, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the Puranas. And um, I've joked about a thousand times on this podcast, like I have no idea why I'm not an ethnographer because I love people. I love talking to people and it's a way of life. Um, I can't turn it off with the barista, with the Uber driver, with the mailman. Every encounter is an opportunity to learn about the human puzzle or to learn about what people think about the pandemic. And I really feel that I'm in the middle of this multi-decade process that you've just come out of to produce this book. And I feel that at some point, <laughs> all of this sort of um, unconscious, habitual, uh, um, um, uh, informal data collection will probably inform um, something uh, more uh, rig- rigorously uh, articulated in some kind of work. So I really resonate with with that. In addition to the to the methodology of going through life and asking people about things and learning about cultures. It, it, that's you know that's taken to the nth degree when you live in a city like Toronto. But in addition to that, I find it hilarious that so much of what you talk about um, resonates with my own experiences in Toronto. I've known so many people who have belonged to ISKCON and still do. I've known so many people who were devotees of um, Sri Chinmoy. He has a an amazing uh, his devotees have a, an amazing uh, vegetarian restaurant in Toronto called Anapurna. Uh, I know individuals who are part of the Self-Realization Fellowship. I know a variety of what you call in your book um, adopters. And I, of course, know a variety of inheritors. And while initially one might, you know, the scholarly mind might say, well, is this, well, why is this book not either about adopters or about inheritors? And and, and it's, it's sort of, you know, uh, mixed in the sense. The texture of my experience corroborates what you're saying. We can't really separate one from the other anymore, especially in that there are heritage learners who are actually even trained by adopters. I learned, you know, you know my guru was a traditional Indian master. One of his, um, one of his first initiates, uh, a man who's now 70, uh, my teacher met him in the 70s. He was his first main student. I was probably his last main student. That man is in a white body. That man's now teaching me things that my teacher didn't have a chance to teach me before he left this earth. It's so all over the place. And it's it's really artificial to think about, well, you know, is Hinduism in America what, um, you know, what, 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 what children of the diaspora are doing? Or is it what, you know, Americans interested in yoga, in vegetarianism, uh, in George Harrison are doing? And so I just wanted to reflect that back in terms of uh, some fascinating parallels with my own experience here in Toronto. Um, maybe let's dive a little bit into the, 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 the content of the book. Do you want to maybe just briefly touch on 
the sort of uh, the menu, the table of contents, and then we can maybe dive into some chapters of interest. Absolutely. Sure, sure. So uh, I start with um, an introduction that really tries to lay out the agenda and the methodology of the book. Um, the terminology I'm going to use, I found Amanda Lucia's terminology of inheritors and adopters very good because it's awkward. I mean, we, we generalize and we'll say, you know, South Asian uh, Hindus or Indian Hindus, you know, white Hindus or non-Indian Hindus. But again, that's just too broad. And, and as your experience shows, as my experience shows, uh, someone's going to get lost if we um, you know, utilize these kinds of terms, these sort of ethnic terms uh, in a very uh, overly general way, right? So uh, I liked uh, this. Uh, it was in her book on AMA that Amanda Lucia developed this uh, categorization of adopters and inheritors because without any sort of indication about ethnicity, it just it just shows that did you come to the tradition through your family inheritance or did you come through to the tradition through your own journey and your own set of personal choices. And even those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but uh, at least it, it, it helps us set up this dichotomy in a way that's not uh, offensive, basically. I mean, to put it very bluntly to anyone, I mean, inheritors, that could be someone whose parents were white and were in ISKCON and joined it in the 70s, and they've grown up with that, and that's their tradition. And, I, and I've interviewed and met people uh, like that. They are inheritors, uh, but they're not you know, South Asian, uh, ethnically speaking. And, um, and you have adopters, you know, of all different backgrounds uh, as well. So I, I lay out those kinds of issues. And also, you know, why am I talking about the various things I'm talking about uh, under the heading of Hinduism in America? One thing I wanted to be very clear of is that many of the people that I'm talking to and, and talking about in the book don't call themselves Hindu. So to write about them in a book on Hinduism in America is not intended to sort of covertly incorporate them into the tradition. I'm, I'm a very uh, strong adherent of the view that you are what you identify yourself to be and that, uh, that there's a sort of violence involved in saying, you know, yeah, but you're really Hindu or you're really, you know, in, I remember uh, when I was studying Catholic theology, so many people take offense at Karl Rahner's uh, anonymous Christian concept, right? I'm, I'm not saying anyone's an anonymous Hindu. That, that's another whole issue. But certainly this complex set of phenomena that we as scholars have sort of collectively agreed to call by the name Hinduism somewhere touches and impacts significantly what these people are doing, you know, that they are part of a tradition or they're engaged in a practice that certainly has what we could call a Hindu provenance, right? So uh, I wanted to cast as wide a net as possible because the whole idea was to show that these phenomena are all closely connected. So the, that first, that introductory chapter is really more sort of methodological and defining what is this book about, right? What are we covering here? And we're covering quite a lot. Um, the first, then the first proper chapter, I would say chapter one, is an introduction to Hinduism. Uh, again, the book is intended, uh, hopefully for everyone who's interested in it, but, uh, you know, primarily with students in mind. And so it could be that someone is reading this book in a course, uh, and it's the first time they're being introduced to Hinduism. So the first chapter is your basic overview of Hindu concepts, Hindu history, some of the conceptual issues involved with the term itself, was Hinduism invented, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so that's uh, covered in the first chapter. Uh, second chapter uh, delves into the 19th century, and I, I'm, I'm 
I would say I'm especially fond of the second chapter. And uh, external reviewers of the manuscript, uh, the review process it went through, uh, seem to like this chapter as well. Uh, chapter two sort of runs along two parallel tracks. You have the 19th century in India, which is characterized by, of course, the experience of colonization. And then you get the various reform movements, the Samajas, the Brahmo Samaj, the Arya Samaj, uh, Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda, uh, this whole series of movements in India that are responses to what is happening to India at that time, the encounter with the West, the encounter with Christianity, Western science, and so forth, and how by many of these reform figures, or they're, they're traditionally called reform figures, the, the term reform itself is, is of course contested, but you know widely for, referred to as reform figures, they, they're reconfiguring their understanding of, of the Hindu tradition, uh, and of course some would argue, you know, crafting uh, what we now call Hinduism uh, as a response to, uh, of, of their tradition and their local understanding to this phenomenon of uh, you know, Western culture coming in. And then parallel with that, and, and at the same time as that, you have people in the Western world with a growing fascination for India and for Hindu thought. And so that's where I talk about people like Emerson and Thoreau and Walt Whitman, the Theosophical Society. And so you have these sort of two 19th centuries happening at the same time, uh, an Indian 19th century that is very much being impacted by the West through colonization and a Western, um, primarily an American, I would say, though similar things were happening in, in Europe, but in this book I'm focusing on, on the American side of it, an American 19th century where you have at least a, a substantial subset of intellectuals and you know, very thoughtful and influential people who find a lot of wisdom in the early translations and, and the early encounter they're having with Indian thought. And um, in many ways, the figure in whom these two 19th centuries converge is Gandhi. And I have some discussion of Gandhi at the end of this chapter because Gandhi's a wonderful example of uh, what I call the back and forth motion uh, between India and the West, uh, that uh, he, of course, is Indian. He grows up in Gujarat from a Vaishnav family with pretty heavy influence from Jainism as well in his thought. Uh, but he's also pretty Westernized. He goes to London and studies law. Uh, but uh, it's uh, through Westerners who are interested in India, and it's especially through the work of Henry David Thoreau, that he is inspired to sort of delve back into the tradition of his upbringing and uh, emerge with ideas like Satyagraha. Uh, and so, um, you know, uh, Thoreau gets influenced by the Gita. He's reading it by Walden Pond. But then Thoreau's own work gets Gandhi to go back and read the Gita and uh, uh, in more depth. So uh, it's really, uh, uh, I, I think, a very interesting period uh, when, we, when we're looking at the interface between Hinduism and the Western world. I think that the 19th century is just incredibly rich on both sides uh, in terms of, of uh, how people are creatively responding to uh, one another's traditions and experiences. And then we go into the third chapter, and that gets us into the 20th century, and we see uh, a very kind of uh, um, 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off how would i say it uh sort of like a two-faced approach uh in a sense uh toward uh hinduism uh in america you get the coming of the first gurus uh swami vivekananda paramahansa yogananda for example uh, who get a very positive and very warm respect re- reception they they develop a following at the same time uh, other Indians who are coming into the U.S. in that early period are face, facing vicious racism and violence and just horrible experiences. You have the Bellingham riots, for example, in Washington, uh, and uh, w- most of the victims of that were Sikh, in fact, uh, Sikhs uh, who had come uh, onto to the West Coast to, to work and earn money and, and you know, um, you know, they were many of them had been um, uh, members of the British military and they'd done their term of service and they decided they would earn some money and then go back to India and settle down. And, uh, you know, they weren't they weren't harming anyone. And then they faced this vicious racism. And it culminates, uh, of course, at the Asian Exclusion Act in 1924. And uh, there's just some blood chilling material when you when you read this, some of the indignities uh, that uh, that Indians faced in America. Uh, the first Indian to be granted his uh, American citizenship actually had his citizenship stripped away from him uh, through legal action. Uh, the, the, the racism is, is, is powerful. And uh, not to get too political, but some of the things that we read, like if, if there, there was a group called the Asiatic Exclusion League who were pushing for the exclusion of Indians and, and other Asians from America. And a lot of their rhetoric... I. I I hope I don't offend any listeners, but it sounds like it comes right out of a speech by Donald Trump. Uh, it's, you know, they're taking our jobs away. They don't fit into our culture. They don't this, they don't that. You know, this very nasty sort of xenophobia. Um, and then, of course, with the Asian Exclusion Act, uh, the coming of, of Indian teachers into America, uh, that dries up, uh, right? You have a variety of spiritual teachers who come in the early part of the 20th century. A lot of them are not very well known. Uh, beyond their circles of followers, but uh, there were Vaishnav teachers. Uh, there was the founder of the Brahma Kumaris. All of these people, uh, you know, were coming into America, and then it just, you know, stopped. Nineteen twenty-four, uh, and you get this sort of dry spell. Uh, this this long period, and then uh, that takes us into Chapter Four, where we get the counterculture emerging in the sixties, and you get a new wave of Western interest and. Uh, 
Uh, of course, there's the part of the counterculture, sig- a very significant part is the civil rights movement with the passing of the civil rights legislation in 1964, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Congress realizes, you know, that there are actually a bunch of exclusionary laws that now contradict the principles affirmed in the in the Civil Rights Act. So one of the things to be swept away uh, the following year was the Asian Exclusion Act, and that was lifted and uh, people from India could again come into America. And so you start to get gurus again. Um, uh, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada comes to the U.S., uh, the Maharishi uh, Mahesh Yogi, uh, Swami Muktananda, Sri Chinmoy, uh, whom you mentioned earlier, a whole host of others come and, and, and develop followings. And, uh, of course, uh, then uh, you also get uh, more and more uh, people who aren't spiritual teachers. They're just uh, regular folks who want to uh, you know, succeed economically and see what kind of life they can make. So this takes us into the next chapter where we have uh, the, the Indian immigration uh, picking up steam uh, in the 70s and continuing right to the present. Uh, I've got the, that chapter is called America Land of Temples because we start to see the Hindu temple, the American Hindu temple phenomenon emerging. And uh, American Hindu temples are quite different from Indian Hindu temples in several respects. Um, One is the way they're managed. Uh, They tend to be run by uh, groups of private individuals. Uh, There's usually a board of trustees. Uh, Things are run through uh, based on donations and people's willingness to give their time. And just the enormous dedication that you see. And I find that in, in the, the various temple communities I've either been part of or that I visited in the course of doing my field work, there always seems to be like a handful of people that uh, everyone points to and says, well, without them, the whole thing would fall apart. You know, because you, you have this always a small group of people who are extremely de- dedicated and they, they build these institutions. And then, of course, you have temples that are affiliated with sampradayas with movements. So you have the Swami Narayan movement, for example. ISKCON, of course, is there. Uh, and uh, I found uh, as I was doing some work on you know, the composition, like what are the Hindu temples throughout America? There are a lot of Sai Baba temples in the U.S. And I, I think this is probably uh, something that, that merits even further study. I know there are people who've done work on it, but uh, Sai Baba is very popular in America, uh, and uh, but not one you hear a lot about, right? Everyone hears about ISKCON, everyone hears about the Vedanta Society and Swami Narayan and so on. And uh, so you have that, you know, that, that emergence of Hinduism as part of the American religious and cultural landscape. And I have small sections uh, in that chapter uh, also about Hinduism in Canada and in the um, Caribbean. Uh, my expertise in those two countries is limited. And so that's reflected in the fact that you know, the coverage is not as in-depth as I would like it to be. But I thought it was important to mention, you know, you call a book Hinduism in America. And, you know, people in the U.S., we have this obnoxious tendency to just use the word America to refer to the United States. But America includes you know, North America, South America, <laughs> Canada, Mexico, and so on. So I thought I, I needed to talk about those communities. Their experiences are important uh, and also distinctive uh, in terms of uh, in relation to the U.S. experience. The Caribbean especially, of course, because that's probably the oldest experience, or it's certainly the oldest experience of uh, Hindus in America, because you had the um, indentured servitude, people being brought over in the uh, early 1800s uh, to uh, to labor uh, in places like uh, Guyana and Trinidad uh, and so forth uh, and so forth. And, and so I thought that needed to be at least 
you know, touched upon. So I, I touched upon it as well in that chapter. And then I turned to uh, another favorite of mine is this chapter on Hinduism and popular culture. And in fact, I, I think I could probably write a whole book just about that because uh, this is another way in which I personally have uh, often encountered and interfaced with, with, with Hinduism was often as mediated through uh, pop culture. And of course, George Harrison, you know, that's a very famous example. Uh, but something that uh, a lot of people don't really realize uh, until they dig into it, Star Wars, right? I mean, it's full of characters with Indian names and uh, teachings that are very akin to Vedanta and Buddhism. Uh, just about everything that comes out of Yoda's mouth, right, is uh, it, it resonates with something uh, either in the Gita or in the Buddhist scriptures. And so uh, I, I talked about that. Uh, uh, Hindu artists... Um, or you know, Western artists who are who are influenced and shaped by Hinduism. Some identify as Hindu, uh, others don't. Many identify as devotees of particular teachers. So John Anderson from the band Yes, for example, uh, is a devotee of Paramahansa Yogananda. Um, so I, I talk about uh, that uh, in, in that chapter, uh, and uh, and then just you know broader Hindu cultural influence, vegetarianism, yoga. Uh, I did an interview with a yoga practitioner, uh, someone who I, I can't say how representative this person is, but it's someone that I know fairly well and was was fairly accessible. And it was very interesting to see her uh, points of contact with yoga and how she understood some of the political issues that circle around you know how yoga gets identified. And so that interview is there in its entirety uh, in the book. And uh, a topic that I've explored mainly as a philosopher, but religious pluralism. Uh, you know, this ancient Vedic attitude uh, that uh, there are many paths to one ultimate reality. And uh, it's become practically mainstream in America now. You know, what was the process of that? Who were the philosophers and theologians who sort of mediated these ideas to the West? And, you know, John Hick plays a big role there. Houston Smith, Joseph Campbell, they all play a big role there. Uh, and then I conclude with uh, the sort of uh, politically active and, and the kind of uh, increasingly assertive uh, Hinduism that we are finding in the 21st century. I have a pretty in-depth case study of the Hindu American Foundation. Uh, I know a lot of individuals in that organization, and so I was able to conduct quite a few interviews. Uh, just the tip of the iceberg actually is reflected in the book. Um, I mentioned a couple of other Hindu organizations as well. Sadhana Coalition is one that's increasingly assertive and, and present uh, in the political scene. And uh, sort of just conclude with some reflections on what does the future hold? And of course, uh, those things are always dangerous to predict. We, we don't really know what the future is going to hold. Uh, but, but what I postulate in the book is that I mean, racism is deeply present in America. Um, there is a certain amount of Christian supremacy that is certain, deeply present in America. In fact, uh, Kathy Joshi's just written a wonderful book about this uh, on uh, uh, Christian supremacy, uh, white Christian privilege is the title of the book. And so there will still be resistance, I think, to Hindus and to Hinduism by many Americans. Uh, at the same time, the extent to which Hinduism has been a catalyst for cultural transformation to the extent that it already has, even with a very small percentage of people who actually are self-identified Hindus, uh, suggests that, that there's, there is a real power in these ideas to shape the way people think and uh, that, uh, you know, 
Hindus will continue to adapt to American society and its norms, but American society will also have to uh, adapt and accommodate uh, the presence of Hinduism, and, and it already has to, to a great extent. So that's a kind of over, you know very overly broad summary of the book. Uh, and there's an appendix which is as complete a list of Hindu temples in America as my assistant and I were able to compile, but I expect it's not complete because I think there are probably new temples coming up every day. Well, it's definitely a really good resource and, and you, you've done a good job of giving the, the 30,000 foot view of the book and folks understand now why, however vast a title one may think Hinduism in America is, it's, it's apropos. <laughs> we're looking at pretty much every thread we can think of in terms of, um, in terms of how uh, Indian thought, Hindu thought and culture um, has permeated and, and continues to impact American uh, society. Um, there was, a, I, was uh, I was laughing out loud to myself reading your section on Star Wars. One of my more popular courses at the School of Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto was a course I designed called Myth and Meaning. I think it was an, it's an eight-week course. Eight weeks? Anyhow, the first half of the course, I was looking at ancient uh, religious, uh, ancient comparative religion, comparative mythology from India and the ancient Near East. And the second half of the course, I was looking at, quote unquote, modern mythology, a.k.a. sci-fi fantasy. Uh, Lord of the Rings, um, 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 Star Wars was huge. When I first designed the course, because it was obvious to me that something was going on there, uh, I was so naive, I didn't realize uh, that George Lucas was literally inspired by a comparative mythologist, Joseph Campbell, to, 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 to consciously manufacture for modern times um, a, 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 a type of narrative that's been, the, that's been affecting folks for millennia. Um, and so, it was, so, anyways, it was really good to include that link in, in the course and... and it really opened people's eyes that yeah, sci-fi fantasy is full of religion, right? But but administered in a safe way, I guess. Um, so that was really cool. Tell us about this. This uh, you have a small section in one of the later chapters about stereotypes. You talk about Indiana Jones. You talk about Apu. You talk about uh, Rajesh Kutarpali from The Big Bang Theory. I love that show, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, what, what do you say about these characters? Okay. No, in, in fact, this was the section, I think, where I surprised myself the most because now, I'm a fan of all of these shows. I mean, uh, I, you know, when I was in high school, I, 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 I almost am afraid to admit it, but I even enjoyed Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when I was in high school, though now I'm horrified by it. But at the time, it's like, ah, Indiana Jones. But um, what I say I surprised myself is because as I engaged in the analysis of each of these shows, I didn't know where it was going to take me. And I'll explain what I mean, because I'll kind of go through the analysis very quickly. Uh, I talk about, yes, the stereotypes of, of India generally, um, somewhat of Hinduism in particular, but really a lot of this is just generally Indian, you could say. Uh, Indiana Jones and the, and the Temple of Doom, of course, uh, you know, with all respect to Steven Spielberg and George Lucas uh, and Harrison Ford, uh, it's the just the it's the worst. I mean, it's the absolute worst offender, uh, I think, in terms of negative stereotypes, because it's just completely false. I mean, uh, you know, people don't eat monkey brains. I mean, 
you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a thing, right? It, it, it's not, you know, well, yeah, exactly. I'm, well, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, chilled or otherwise, uh, and the eyeballs floating in the soup. I mean, most people in India would be, just be so horrified by that and, uh, and offended. And, um, uh, but you have people who watch the movie who don't know any better and they think, oh yeah, that's what I mean. I've had so many students I've had to correct their misconceptions about and about Kali, of course, and I'm a devotee of Ramakrishna. So, you know, Ma Kali is very dear to us. And, uh, the idea that she's this, you know, sort of, uh, gruesome goddess of a, of a bloodthirsty cult. Now, of course there was the Thug cult, uh, back in the 19th century, but it was not on the scale that is depicted in that film. You know, they didn't have a temple of doom uh, or anything like that. And if you look at the way the, the, the deities are depicted, uh, Kali and Shiva are depicted as opponents, right? Almost like good and evil. But of course, they're husband and wife, right? I mean, this is a very basic Hinduism. So, I mean, that movie is just like beyond the pale. But it did give me an opportunity to talk about Kali. So I, I indulge that uh, in that part of the book. Then we move to Apu and the Simpsons. And, uh, and of course, there's been a really good uh, documentary on this, you know, the problem with Apu. And uh, you just, you, you have all kinds of stereotypes of Indians that are in, uh, embodied in, in Apu. Uh, and like one of the things I mentioned is his last name, which is you know, lengthy and unpronounceable and, and bears no resemblance to anything Indian. But it's sort of a satire on, the, you know, this is how many Americans probably feel or think when they hear an Indian name, right? And and so, uh, and and then you, we move to Rajkurtapali in uh, Big Bang Theory. And, uh, you know, he is maybe marginally better than Apu in terms of a, of a stereotype, but not a lot, really. I mean, you know, he the, the way he's depicted is, is uh, you know, early in the series, he can't even speak to a woman unless he's drunk, you know, he's, he's sexually repressed, you know, terribly awkward. And, and of course, all of this is for comedic purpose. Uh, Apu and, and Raj are both for comedic purpose. But what I found in my analysis of these shows is that part of what is supposed to be funny about them, right? The, the, the gaze of the audience that is presupposed by these characters is one in which Indianness itself is somehow funny, right? That that it is because these characters are Indian that they have certain peculiarities that are viewed as funny, and of course that's just textbook racism. I mean, really. Uh, and again, yeah, I've I've laughed at these shows and these depictions, uh, but often just because because with my acquaintance with the Indian community, I see how ridiculous they are. So I'm not really laughing. I think for the reason I'm supposed to, I'm laughing at the show because, oh my gosh, that's so stupid. Uh, but again, you know, there are people who uh, might buy into these stereotypes. And, and so they're, they're dangerous, uh, I think, in many ways, uh, apart from just being offensive. But where I really surprised myself is, you know, I, I, I was covering basically series with which I was familiar and I came to the office and you have the character of Kelly played by Mindy Kaling and uh, Mindy Kaling, I think significantly is also one of the writers of the office. So I think it reflects more of the consciousness of a South Asian person and a South Asian woman specifically. Uh, whereas, you know, Apu is entirely a creation of, of the non-Indian writers of, of the Simpsons. And even though Kunal Nair, who plays Raj in the Big Bang Theory, has written a couple of episodes, he didn't create the character. Uh, and so, as I say in my analysis, I think his subjectivity 
is a little more, his agency is a little more limited uh, in the depiction of that character than Mindy Kaling's was with Kelly. Well, the thing that's interesting about The Office is that, yeah, Kelly is as funny as any of the other characters, but her Indianness is not what makes her funny, right? She's funny because of personal characteristics that anyone could have, right? She's always having crushes on, on different characters and, and if she, she, talks incessantly and you know, she's, she's extremely competitive. And I think these are just peculiarities of her. The real buffoon in the office, uh, the one at whom we laugh, is Michael Scott because he believes in stereotypes. And because he trades in stereotypes, that makes him look stupid. That makes him look funny. And I, again, I, I surprised myself with this analysis because I didn't realize it was headed this way, but I concluded that the office has a very enlightened view uh, of uh, diversity issues relative to um, Simpsons and Big Bang Theory. It really represents an advance, and maybe the fact that Mindy Kaling is involved in the writing of it has played a role in that, uh, possibly. Um, because, uh, yeah, and, 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 I, and I mentioned, too, that even Michael Scott is handled with compassion in the show. Um, and uh, so it, it really, it, it, none of this makes it less funny. The office is, is an incredibly funny, uh, show. Uh, so, you know, look at big bang theory. A lot of the humor is based on stereotypes about the various cast members. And as I mentioned, it's not just Raj, uh, Howard Wallowitz. So you get all of the, you know, Jewish jokes there. Uh, Sheldon Cooper is uh, from an evangelical Christian family in Texas, and you get all kinds of jokes about Texas. And stuff. So the humor is coming from the stereotypes. But I, I thought it was interesting that in The Office, uh, if you really look closely at, at the way the humor plays out, the humor is coming from the fact that there are people who believe in stereotypes, and that makes them look like buffoons. And so, um, yeah, that's that, that was a, a piece of analysis that I... Uh, like I said, I didn't, I didn't come to that topic with a preconceived judgment in mind. I just started looking at the different episodes and uh, episodes, especially that featured those characters, and that's what I came up with. Well, it's 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 fascinating, right? Like, uh, personally, I uh, I personally am able to flick off the um, scholarly switch for the most part, and um, yeah probably have some qualms with uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, <laughs> but I can, I can get along just fine with the cast of Big Bang Theory and, uh, and Rajesh Kutrapali. And I, you know, the, the sad part is as skewed and ridiculous and stereotypical as the show is, boy, would my childhood have been uh, very different if that show was on, you know, 20 years before (laughs) where there was such a character and someone knew how to say that name. And it just, it's so funny. Yeah. Cause you're Raj, right. That's exactly. (laughs) What does, um, right. And I have trouble talking to women, of course, and I need to drink to do, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What does your book teach us about, um, the Hindu diaspora? So inheritors of Hinduism living in America or, or, or being raised in America or in, immigrating to America. So uh, what it teaches, um, of course, again, and we're looking at a very, very broad level on a very, very broad scale. But what I hope it projects, what I hope it conveys is a very uh, community that is on the one hand extremely adaptable, uh, that is able to uh, reconfigure itself in a brand new environment while at the same time maintaining the integrity of its core commitments. Uh, this is a really hard 
balancing act, right? And I think all immigrant communities face this. Uh, you know, how do you assimilate? That is, feel comfortable in the American environment and in and exist in a way in which Americans are comfortable with you while not surrendering yourself. Uh, and this is the conundrum, right? This is the challenge. And of course, I don't think any communi- community pulls it off perfectly uh, or any individual, but people come to an understanding, right? They come to a, a modus vivendi, as we would say, a way of living uh, that, that is workable for them. And I think what the Hindu community has done is, is really a, a remarkable achievement in this regard, that uh, to be by and large accepted, uh, accepted, maybe tolerated in, in, uh, in some parts, uh, accepted in others. But uh, there are Hindu temples now across the United States. There are Hindu institutions now across the United States. There's Hindu, uh, increasingly Hindu political activism uh, in the United States that r- stretches across the political spectrum. And so it's a a story of this balancing act of assimilation and yet retaining one sense of who one is. And of course, there's that question uh, that comes up more often in the second and third generation. Well, who am I, in fact? What does it mean to be an Indian American? What does it mean to be a Hindu American? And so there's an ongoing navigation of this as well. Um, And so... uh, I think what, what I want what I want people to come away with, apart from uh, a sympathetic understanding of the tradition itself and and its beliefs and its practices and of the people who uphold those, uh, is also I think a sense of admiration for a community that has uh, suffered a lot uh, in terms of racism, in terms of religious bigotry, uh, but that nevertheless prevails and uh, uh, is also uh, has been of course people talk about the model minority concept. That itself is problematic. Uh, in fact, uh, Vijay Prashad is someone who, uh, whose work I quote uh, in my book is saying that, uh, you know, in many ways that, that is itself a type of uh, stereotype that uh, downplays the, the fact that Indian Americans are also people who really should be part of what we would call broadly the resistance, right, against white privilege, against uh, white supremacy, domination, and so forth. That, uh, you know, from his perspective, you know, it, it makes more sense for Indian Americans to make common cause with African Americans than to try to identify and assimilate with the dominant society. And this, I think, is a little bit of a tug of war internal to the Indian community that I've observed. Um, I found that and I don't know if it was because they were talking to me, uh, but uh, the vast majority of the Indian Americans with whom I've spoken about race issues weren't terribly comfortable talking about those issues. That is, uh, they were comfortable talking about the experiences they had and that that people shared a lot with me about bigotry they had experienced and both subtle and overt. Um, But they didn't want to think of Hinduism in those terms. I guess that's another point is there tended to be, with very few exceptions, a desire to see Hinduism as something more universal, more expansive, more all-inclusive, and not bound by characteristics like race, because those are connected with the body, you know, and we, you know, you mentioned uh, one of your teachers earlier, you said he's, he's inhabiting a white body, right? That, that is a way, that is more, I think, of a Hindu way of thinking of race issues than saying, okay, he's white, she's black, he's brown. No, they're inhabiting a white body, they're inhabiting a brown body, they're inhabiting a black body. And that doesn't make the body entirely incidental to who you are. 
but it puts it in a new light, right? That, that there is an essence of ourself that is transcendental, that is spiritual, that is pure consciousness. And one of the things that is enjoined in multiple Hindu texts is that we see that in everyone, you know, see God in everyone. As why people say namaste, for example. And one of the things I note in my conclusion is that some of these Hindu ideals, like what I just mentioned, could really contribute toward completing uh, what Habermas called the incomplete project of modernity, right? Uh, moving us toward a society that is not racist, that is not based on the supremacy of one group, one set of bodies, you could say, over another, but that is uh, founded in the core, not only dignity, but the Hindu tradition would say the divinity of, of all of us. And so I, I think that faith is also a big part of what has made the Hindu community in America so resilient. Right? There's this deep sense of being connected to something that's very spiritual and ancient and true uh, that, that will get you through uh, difficult times and help you overcome things like prejudice. Well, yeah, just responding to, to some of the threads and what you've just said, you know, there's this double-edged sword or this intrigue of, of you know, there's, you know, the idea of the universe, quote-unquote universality of Hinduism and that, you know, it's Sanatana and anyone can partake. There's certainly, uh, there's certainly political ideological motivations on behalf of certain individuals to promote that. And then by the same token, the irony is that for one who actually subscribes to Hindu worldview, they literally view, you know, even one's Indian culture as, you know, part of the, 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 the part of the body that that's a garment to be discarded ultimately. Um, so like <laughs> various points reading this, um, uh, I sort of was just like, uh, thinking about, you know, there's this chap I know, let's call him Raj. Okay. <laughs> and, and so much of this book, um, touches on these various aspects of his, um, of his history. He was, uh, born in Guyana. He emigrated to Toronto, Canada, and he was an inheritor of Hinduism in much the same way as um, most are inheritors of Catholicism in our present age, where, you know, one may observe Diwali, there's a shrine in the home, but it wasn't a rigorous, re, rigorously um, uh, ritualistic or, or, or sort of a practicing uh, home in that sense. And then he sort of, rejected it because, you know, part of it was assimilating into Western culture. Part of it was that, you know, being, you know, a thinking sort of fellow uh, and sort of, you know, thinking this ritual is kind of superstitious and, you know, thinking that organized religion is something for, for sheep, you know. And then in his early 20s, he starts spiritually seeking <laughs> and he discovers the study, academic study of Hinduism at the same time that he's exploring um, ideas and practices from Hinduism as a mode of spiritually seeking. And he finds a traditional Indian guru in giving <laughs> satsangs in a yoga studio <laughs> in Toronto, <laughs> undergoes all kinds of fascinating um, experiences and initiations with this, with this being. And his kith and kin uh, spiritually are 
uh, folks who are into yoga, uh, vegetarianism, pujas, they may or may not belong to ISKCON or Self-Realization Fellowship. His co-disciples are all, quote unquote, Hindus in white bodies. And voila, (laughs) maybe that chap named Raj, maybe his experience isn't so atypical uh, if one is to believe what you write in your book. (laughs) But it occurred occurred to me that you were either, you might've been stalking me for some time or (laughs) or we should, (laughs) or perhaps I should have been an uh, 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 interview subject. uh, I I think so. As I heard your story, I thought, oh my gosh, I wish I'd talked with you about this. I wish uh, you had been one of the people I'd interviewed because your story fits so well uh, with everything I've observed and uh, the people I've spoken with and my own experiences and just, you know, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really grateful to hear you say that. Well, no, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's endlessly fascinating. Um, and I have to say, it's just synchronistic in my world in that, you know, I have a traditional Indian guru, you know, I've been entrusted with a lineage of teachings, mostly esoteric teachings uh, pertaining to the evolution of consciousness to awakening and that's a part of self that is, um, you know, not at the forefront when I when I study texts uh, at the academy, for example. That powerful ancient, quote unquote, authentic teachings <laughs> were transmitted in the city of Toronto to an individual who, um, you know, who has a, a Western upbringing, right, and a West Indian background, right. Uh, some parts of my heritage, like my grandmother was uh, my mother's side, they were Arisamajists, right? So there's just so much incredible texture there that it's like, you know, you, you really don't know how to make sense of it. You, you can't really talk about Hinduism in modern times without looking at, um, um, what's the language you use from Amanda Lucia? Um, uh, adopters as well as inheritors and then the, the cross-pollination between the two yes absolutely right? absolutely yeah and and this cross-pollination i think is an extremely important feature to draw attention to because again it's it's not one that we have tended to focus on with we meaning the academy we can just, just split things up into boxes and there are people who study immigrant communities and there are people who study you know white folks doing yoga and um it's not that the two don't meet or talk to each other. I was involved in the North American Hinduism uh, unit of the AAR. It was a wonderful experience. And in fact, that's where I met Dan Gleig and Lola Williamson and a lot of the people uh, that I've cited in the book. Uh, but they've, you know, people who write papers or books on one of those topics tend not to write on the other and vice versa. But uh, your experience, my experience, and those of so many people that I have interviewed and, and talked with uh, uh, or whose accounts I've read uh, that I've engaged with through the years show that these crisscross all the time. Uh, so much so that uh, I it wouldn't surprise me if we had to predict the future if those boundaries just collapse one day. Right? Uh, you know, I, uh, I I spoke on a, a Vinit Chander at, at Princeton uh, had a panel on uh, the white Hindu phenomenon a number of years ago. And one of the comments I made there was, you know, I can imagine a time when, you know, a white American Hindu is just another type of Hindu, right? There, there, there are Gujarati Hindus and South Indian Hindus and Bengali Hindus, and you know, this is just going to be another uh, culture that gets uh, pulled into this larger phenomenon of, of dharma. 
And so uh, I, I think another thing that's important that you pointed out, so much of these things are transmitted through experience. And, and you mentioned esoteric teaching, for example. So it's a lot of it is something you're not supposed to talk about, right? I, I know uh, the mantra that I was given by my guru, I'm not to share that with anyone. Uh, and uh, there are certain experiences that you have that you're told, you know, you maybe you can share with someone you're very close to, but it's not the kind of thing you should write about in a book or proclaim publicly, right? It's very personal to you. And when that is informing, when that thing that you really can't talk about is informing your scholarship and your work, it, it is sometimes a tricky issue because in scholarship, we're all about what can be documented, right? So you can't just say, well, this tradition, they do this. And then someone will say, well, what's your source for that? Right? And your source for that might be a lineage of teachers going back, you know, many, many generations, but it's not something that you can. Parampara, right? Yeah, parampara. And you, you can't cite your parampara, really. Uh, you can talk about what you've observed. Uh, you can uh, interview people. Uh, and you can, uh, and you can of course, cite texts. But uh, a lot of what I find lived Hinduism is about is, is sort of unsightable uh, because it's, it's coming from a very uh, inward kind of space and, and in many cases, as you say, an esoteric space. Well, you know, one of the things that my guru was steeped in, I mean, he, by the time I met him, he was later in life. I knew him for the last 12 years of his life uh, where I trained pretty rigor- rigorously with him alongside academic training. Uh, he passed in 2017. Uh, but by the time I met him, he was focusing uh, his his sort of uh, teaching privately and publicly was exclusively on, you know, what he would call moksha shastra. He'd be teaching Patanjali, he'd be teaching uh, Bhagavad Gita, and yet much earlier in his life, he was steeped in um, Hasta Samudraka, in uh, Jyotisha, in Ayurveda, in Vastu, it's just steeped like he was a wizard in such things. And by the time I met him, he wasn't formally teaching. Uh, uh, those kalas anymore. He was focusing on Moksha Shastra. And so um, his first student, a man named Hart, uh, uh, Mantriji met Hart, uh, I think in the mid 70s. So Hart was trained, you know, Hart started being trained before I was born. You know, he was really the first main disciple and he, uh, Mantriji taught no one else as much, for example, Jyotisha as hard to follow. So now, you know, if I want to brush up on some Jyotisha because I'm looking at a text, you know, one of the arguments in one of the texts, uh, in one of the articles I, uh, I write about the, the Devi Mahatmya is that the sun myths actually encode the astronomical positioning of the Durga Puja, right? So if I want to brush up on some Jyotisha from my parampara, I go to the lineage holder of Jyotisha from my guru, who's a white man in Toronto. That is heart, right? Yeah, there, there you go. Yeah. And so it's like, and for me, it's like, it's not, I mean, I imagine, you know, especially a generation or two before me, I imagine it must have been a difficult journey to be, you know, uh, sharing or teaching on such subjects, sort of. Um, the expression that comes up uh, sometimes in certain circles as being a white baboon, you know, a white monkey, right? Okay. And so I, I imagine it, it, it's not without challenges, but for me, that person who to the untrained eye is a Westerner, he is actually the only person on the planet who is a, 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 a resident expert 
of my parampara's exposition of Jyotisha. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. right? And, and like, what, what do you do with that? Like, what do you, uh, you know, where does that fit in thinking about quote-unquote cultural appropriation or edic emic divides? And, you know, uh, maybe it's a mixed blessing I'm not doing ethnography. I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> but... right. No, it, it's extremely complicated. And I realized I, I had to really be very careful and very sensitive how I talked about all of these things uh, in the book. Um, and you know, you, you can go too far one way or the other and you end up alienating a large number of people, right? I mean, if, if you, if you emphasize, look, people, you know, anyone can learn this there, there, you know, anyone meaning very few people, I think who really have the seriousness and, and the desire, but I mean, in, in, eth- in ethnic terms, right. Anyone can do this. You know, you have the white, uh, masters of, of, uh, you know, various teachings, uh, at the same time, if you if you overemphasize that, you know, it, it makes it sound like you're uh, almost diminishing, you know, the experience of uh, of the Asian practitioners, and you want to say, well, no, this there's there's something very there's something special about coming from that culture, growing up in that culture, uh, and so on. And of course, there's so many individual idiosyncratic cases. Like, I mean, you mentioned, for example, there was a phase of your life where you didn't take the tradition particularly seriously. Right. Um, whereas Hart was taking it extremely seriously. So, um, you know, you have uh, you have those phenomena. Um, but yeah, and especially when we're talking about white practitioners, and, and I, I do mention this in the book as well, uh, is there something about being white that opens doors that might not have otherwise been opened? In other words, uh, you know, even if we're not uh, as, as white practitioners, you know, we're interested in the spiritual practice. We're interested in learning this and we want to be respectful and we're, we are, you know, going to, to teachers, uh, you know, who are, you know, uh, most of them from India, you know, for this very precious knowledge. Um, but, uh, it may yet be an exercise in white privilege, right? I mean, uh, would it be as easy for, for example, an African-American spiritual aspirant? I know that, uh, African Americans in Hindu traditions have sometimes had struggles that uh, that the white folks didn't, right? Because the, those biases are nevertheless present, right? And so, um, absolutely, yeah. And 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 so it's it, it's very interesting. I mean, it it actually writing this book provoked a lot of soul searching for me because you know, I had to encounter my own white privilege. Uh, and you know, I didn't grow up thinking of myself privileged. I was from a working class background. I was Catholic in a town where. Uh, in fact, Catholics were kind of a, I won't say persecuted in my time, but my grandmother remembered when the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross in front of the Catholic Church back in the 1920s. So, you know, we were kind of a minority. I remember being told I was going to hell and, you know, oh, you all worship the Pope, you worship idols and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, I didn't think of myself as privileged, but uh, I, I realized that it, it nevertheless travels with you, Right. Uh, in the kind of society that we have. And, uh, you know, I, I know sometimes uh, I have a lot of people from India who really like my work, and I'm deeply grateful for that. I'm, I'm profoundly uh, grateful to them for even, you know, reading it uh, or, or listening to a talk I give or something like that. Uh, but I'm also aware that uh, uh, there are Maybe some people uh, who feel that if a white person is speaking positively about a Hindu tradition, then that somehow validates it. Uh, that should not be the case, right? I should just be, uh, you know, another person talking about Hinduism, right? But I'm not. I'm the white college professor from America talking about Hinduism. So I do know that that 
plays a role in the fact that I even get a hearing, uh, possibly. So, uh, you know, and, and we're, of course, living through a time where people in the position like I am have to ask ourselves, what do we do with that? Um, you know, we can't wish it away. Uh, is there a way we can use that position to, uh, to resist uh, such distinctions and uh, advance a, an understanding that is more uh, really authentically connected with the, uh, and affirming of the dig- dignity of everyone? And that's, I, that's what I try to do. I mean, I, I, I try to write and speak in a way that is as all-inclusive as possible and, uh, and as self-aware as possible. And again, that's why I wrote that prologue uh, to the book, because I wanted people to know, why am I writing about this? What's my agenda, right? What's my angle? And uh, I think sometimes if we write in a way that pretends to be objective, what we're doing is actually obscuring our own angle. So uh, it seems to me that the best alternative is to just be very open about it. It's like, yes, I mean, I'm around a Krishna devotee. I, I got into this primarily out of spiritual interest, and the academic career kind of is a happy outgrowth of that. Um, and just to be very open about that fact. Um, otherwise, I mean, I think if, if we're not open and transparent, there's it's, it's very difficult to see a way forward. Well, it's also, it's just a, it's an exercise. Uh, uh, it's as much an exercise in self-awareness as it is in transparent scholarship. And the two, the two sort of uh, support each other in that objectivity is a conceit. It's a myth. We have conditioning. We have values. We have training. We have preferences. We have, you know, ideological bents. We have a gender. We have an orientation. We have an ethnicity. We are deeply conditioned, perspectival beings. And that is unalienable to what it means to be human. And so to pre- pretend that we're Mr. Data from the, the bridge of Star Trek, <laughs> of, of Starship Enterprise, um, you know, this is a conceit. And so what I mean to say is, Obviously, we, we are endeavoring to uh, expand knowledge of Hinduism in a way that makes sense, that, that, that is sound, that accords with uh, observation uh, and tradition, right? Obviously, that's the aim. the aim. Given that, and maybe that's a huge caveat in modern times, but given that that's the aim, that's the goal, that's the intention, that um, supremacy or, or some ideological skewed perception isn't the intention given that to be the case it's only in my opinion going to fortify one's argument to position uh by being very forthcoming about the the the, the, the what factors into that uh otherwise what happens we 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 repress our position or our biases uh we we both run the risk of having having unconscious biases fester in our in our psyche and then rear its ugly head where we least expect it. And we find ourselves uh, uh, defending an untenable position because it's not really an, uh, it's, it's not really a defensible position uh, intellectually. It's born of some repressed value or emotional perspective. Right. And, that, you know, and, and this is why it's challenging. I mean, for me, to be honest, I don't like, I'll be frank with you. I don't like the word Hindu because 
you know, uh, sort of, uh, I got to peek behind the curtain and see the Wizard of Oz in a modern Hinduism class at the University of Toronto. And, and, and I realized, I saw so palpably so much of what Hinduism is, especially in the West Indies, especially in certain um, uh, reform movements. I saw, like, I had this, this palpable uh, taste of the extent to which what I took for granted as a religious tradition was very much a reaction to objections towards that tradition. And so, you know, what does the universe give me? They say, hey, you go uh, you go host the new books in what? Hindu Studies podcast. Hey, you go teach at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. I'm like, okay, you know what? Um, I, I'd rather use the term to give folks a, a, a sort of a, a frame of reference and then problematize it as need be. But there's no other, there's no other term to use. Well, that's the, I, I use it out of necessity, right? So you know, if uh, I mean, I I live in a pretty conservative, uh, mostly white Christian town, and one of the things people will routinely ask you when they first uh, in, encounter you, they'll ask you your name, they'll ask where do you work, and they ask what church do you go to, and uh, so you know, my wife and I say, well, we go to the Hindu temple in Harrisburg, so. Uh, and of course, we kind of get an odd look, but you know we have an answer at least. But if I if I said, oh, I'm uh, in the Vedanta tradition uh, of Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda, they wouldn't even I mean they wouldn't even hear what I was saying, right? It would be like Apu's last name. It would it would just it would not compute. So we have to communicate with people, and the Hindu, for all its problems, is a word people know or think they know. And then, like you said, once we get in the door, then we can explain the complexities of it and you know why it's an inadequate term um and and so on uh but yeah i mean the word hinduism is in the title of a bunch of my publications and yet i find it a deeply problematic word yes not to mention uh the word indian myth <laughs> that's oh. in the title of two of my books there you what go. is that yeah um you know you know it's uh, the titles aren't puranas or mahatmya they're, they're the goddess and the king in right. indian myth goddess and the sun and Indian myth. And so, you know, I'm, I'm owning the term more, you know, I'm not at this stage of the game at all remotely. Um, uh, I have no qualms about my spiritual heritage, my cultural heritage, my religious heritage. It's just that the term right. connotes things in our culture. Right. Um, and some of those, some of those uh, prejudices are on behalf of uh, those who uh, are on the outside of what we call Hinduism, and some of them are, are, are on behalf of those who are within Hinduism. That's right. That's right. I think is it how how a quote unquote a Hindu should um, uh, should be um, regarding a text, and so it's it's a fascinating conversation. Part of the reason why I'm bringing so much of my personal story into this interview, which for those of you listening, you know, you'll get snippets here and there, but but not to this extent, because I think I'm sort of a walking case study for this book. Right? <laughs> I think so too. I mean, that. I, I mean that, I mean, maybe, I, you know, you're, you're more objective because you're not me, but it seems to me that so many, and I haven't even gone into all the stories with people from um, various movements like this con and, and uh, the Sri Trinmoy movement in Toronto, like so much of my personal journey can be, uh, so many anecdotes can fit into different chapters of your book. Um, uh, quite nicely, scarily so. Well, I'm, I'm grateful to hear that because I, I hope that resonates with many people's experience and that they see themselves in the book because then that, that will mean that I have succeeded in conveying what was, what was shared with me uh, in a way that, that is authentic and that rings true to that experience.
Great. So what next? Where <laughs> are you continuing along this this line of inquiry? Are you what are you working on now? Oh, uh, so what I'm working on now is actually um sort of harks back uh, harkens back more to my my earlier work. I, I'm working on an introduction to Indian philosophy, uh, for Bloomsbury. Um, uh, I I have a a set of sort of book projects in the queue uh, that I, I had with I B Taurus, and now they. Now I.B. Taurus belongs to Bloomsbury. So uh, I'm working on the introduction to Indian philosophy. A lot of my work, and I don't know if this is to my credit or to my detriment, but I've written a lot of things that are sort of of a pedagogical nature. Uh, an introductory textbook on Jainism, a dictionary of Hinduism. I know a lot of scholars might say that's not really scholarship, uh, but I'm at a college where pedagogy is heavily emphasized. It's really more of a teaching college than a hardcore research university. And, you know, I write books and they say, okay, that's nice, Jeff, you write books, but we care about what you do in the classroom. Uh, and I find that uh, I develop a lot of my own resources uh, drawing on other people's work. But, uh, you know, we always find that what's out there doesn't necessarily perfectly fit with what we're trying to do. And these have just evolved into textbooks uh, over time. So uh, I have the textbook on Indian philosophy that I'm working on, and there will be a reader of primary sources to accompany that. And then the book after that, um, for which I contracted uh, with I.B. Taurus, now Bloomsbury, is one I'm particularly excited about. It's uh, a book about the Upanishads, and not so much about their composition or the Upanishads themselves, but their reception through history. Uh, how have the Upanishads been interpreted first by the Vedantic Acharyas, uh, and then by uh people like Darashiko, and then moving on into the Western tradition, uh, getting into the 19th century, people like Schopenhauer, Emerson, and so on. So like, that's sort of a reader's reception history of the uh, Upanishads. And uh, that's something I'm really excited about. And um, hopefully all three of those, they're all in the pipeline now. Hopefully they'll be coming out over the course of the next couple of years or so. So once we sign off on this call, on this interview, I'll have to ask you about your productivity hacks and how you produce so much. <laughs> uh, but before then, I think uh, those of you who have made it this this far in the interview, uh, thank you <laughs> for putting up with our rambling, um, hopefully usefully so. Yes. Um, so we have been speaking today with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Long on his very interesting, in my opinion, fascinating, and I would say timely uh, publication, Hinduism in America um, by Bloomsbury Academic. Jeffrey, thanks very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Until next time, um, keep listening, uh, keep reading, and keep pondering what on earth this thing called Hinduism is. Take care. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.